once again and back into God's Word. I call the uh, 9 a.m. service the spiritual special ops, you know, because they're like here early. But here's the thing. When they came, they like all sat on the edges, and so it hurt my feelings. So you guys are my favorite service because there's folks that want to sit closer to me. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's what we're aiming for. Let's create division. Yeah, all right. Man, it is uh, exciting to get into the Lord's Word once again here as we continue our series through the book of 1 Corinthians called Messy, because relationships with other people are intrinsically messy. And here in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is encouraging us on how we should engage with those who don't know the Lord. And so it calls for us to engage in messy relationships And I think today is going to be a super encouragement, at least it has been to my heart. This passage, uh, maybe more than any place in all of Scripture, Paul really lays out his philosophy of ministry when it comes to engaging with those that don't know the gospel. So I think we're going to be encouraged by that. If you have a desire to share your faith, to take what Christ has done and proclaim it to others so that they could know the wonderful words of life, I hope you'll lean in here this morning a little bit and listen to what God has to say from, to us from his word. So can we pause and ask for his help here as we get started? Father, you are good. And as we have already sung and read, Lord, you love sinners. And I pray that today we would be freshly reminded, freshly aware of the great gift it is to be saved by the work of Christ. And Lord, if there are folks here today that haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good in those ways, I pray even this passage of Scripture would come alive for them. Uh, They would hear the voice of the good shepherd calling his sheep this morning. In Christ we pray. Amen. So the title of the message today is All In, and you will see why in just a moment. On September 24th, 1980, William Lee Bergstrom arrived at Binion's Horseshoe Casino in Las Vegas. Bergstrom walked in carrying two things and two things only, two suitcases. One of them containing $777,000 cold hard cash. The other one completely empty. He strolled over to one of the tables and bet the entire suitcase on one roll of the dice. Now, Binion's, that particular casino at the time, had the policy of accepting someone's first gamble, first bet, no matter what the size. So the casino honored it. They rolled the dice and winner, winner, chicken dinner. Now that $777,100 had doubled And he had two suitcases full of cash. He promptly picked those bad boys up and walked out the door and disappeared and lived in Las Vegas lore as the suitcase man or the phantom gambler. Three and a half years later, Bergstrom comes back, this time carrying two more suitcases. Not quite as heavy as last time, but this time $538,000. Puts it once again on the table. The casino honored it. And on one roll of the dice, Bergstrom again won. 
took his two suitcases out of the door with a million dollars in his hand and left the casino to disappear, this time only for a few months. I don't know if his spending habits, he got used to a certain style of lifestyle. I don't know what's going on. He came back in November of that year and made the largest bet in casino history, $1 million on a single roll of the dice. And as you would expect, Bergstrom's luck ran out. He bet it all. And I bring that up because he was the definition of all in, right? There's no half measures, no kind of half-heartedness in this. It is all or nothing. He was all in on his gamble. Now, I certainly can't endorse Bergstrom's choice of activities, but I do admire his commitment. In fact, our passage of scripture today, we will see that the Apostle Paul had a similar all-in type of mindset. But it wasn't all-in on gambling. It was all-in on the gospel. Paul was willing to bet his whole life, everything that was about him, all he had, all he did, all he could leverage, he was leveraging for one purpose and one purpose alone, to see the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to the ends of the earth. It seems like Paul's conviction was simply this, the mission must multiply. It's almost like his heartbeat, the mission must multiply, the mission must multiply, the mission must multiply, the mission must multiply. That was the driving force in Paul's life. And we see that right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse number 16, if you would. Here's what Paul says. I am compelled to preach, and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Or skip down to verse number 23. I do this all because of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. To put it simply, Paul was all in on Christ's mission. He was leveraging all that he had and all that he was to see the gospel proclaimed, to see disciples made, to see sinners saved, to see churches planted. Paul's constant conviction was the mission must multiply. Now, here's the thing. How many of you have read through the New Testament before? Anybody read through the New Testament? Okay, good, good. A good number of you. Well, if you read through the New Testament and come in contact with the Apostle Paul, you realize that though this was the driving passion of his life, he was not some sort of like tangential or out-of-touch person. Paul actually had a wide variety of interests that are very clear from even the illustrations and the analogies that he uses. He was acquainted with the world. In one sense, you could say he was a man of the world. Paul was uh, familiar with athletics. He used them often in his analogies. In fact, in, in one of the uh, examples he uses today, there's an athletic analogy. He was familiar with finance and philosophy and culture and history. All these things were, in one sense, you could say passions of Paul. But there was one passion that overrode them all, and it was a passion to see Christ proclaimed. I think that's really important, because today we live in a culture that says, follow your heart, right? You got to do what you're passionate about. And there's some wisdom in that. I'm not saying that's poor advice or poor counsel, but I am saying there must be a passion, if you're a follower of Jesus, that overrides all other passions, and that passion is to see Christ named in the ends of the earth. So if you're passionate about sports or music or your profession or your family or your children or your spouse or your relationships or Netflix for Pete's sakes, that's fine. Just allow those passions 
to be subservient to the passion, the drive, the aim of our life, namely to see the name of Jesus lifted high, that we may be involved in Christ's mission on the earth. Which leads me to my point this morning, which is simply this. We must be all in on Christ's mission. I don't care what season of life you're in. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your economics are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be all in on this mission. Like Paul, you need to say, I'm all in. I've got my suitcase empty, and the rest of it is up on the table. And Lord, I am all in with your mission in the world. So no doubt, if you're a follower of Jesus, you say, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I, I want to be about Christ's mission, but, but what does that look like? Well, I think that's where 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is so, so helpful for us. Because in this passage, Paul really unpacks what it means to be all in on the mission of Christ. So in the next few minutes, I'd like us to walk through this passage, and I want to show you three traits of what I would call a mission mindset that is embodied in the Apostle Paul. So ready? Buckle up. Let's listen, let's track with me here, and we will see what the Lord does. The first trait of a mission mindset is simply this drive. Paul had a very clear goal related to the advancement of Christ's mission. That is, he knew exactly what he wanted to happen. Look at verse number 19. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Everybody look it up at the screen. In order that I might, what's it say? In order to, in order to, Paul wanted to win. That was Paul's drive. He wanted to win people. And he doesn't say it once. Actually, in this very short passage, he says the same thing five times. Verse number 20, he wants to win the Jews. Verse number 20 again, win those under the law. Verse number 21, win those outside of the law. Verse number 22, win the weak. Paul wanted to win people. So what does that mean? What does it mean to win people? Is Paul like an arm wrestler, arm wrestler or a professional ping pong player? Like, I want to win. No. He had something much more important in mind, and he actually spells that out for us in verse number 22. Look there. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. So in Paul's mind, winning was people being saved. That was Paul's mind. Now, I think this is really important to say because um, if you've grown up around the church at all or, you know, you're here from the South, you know, we can use this term saved kind of flippantly. Like, oh, she really saved. Or he saved, saved. You, you know what I mean? Like, it, it just means like conservative or really careful or really holy. But, but we need to stop for just a moment and think about this biblical word saved. Because I would argue that the word saved is actually one of the most powerful words in all of the scripture. We can't let ourselves, because our familiarity with this term, miss the earth-shattering significance of what it means to be saved. Look, when you experience salvation, you are passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. 
When you are saved, you are a new creature. The Bible says the old has passed away. The new has come. When you are saved, you are rescued from the wrath of God. That is the judgment and the penalty of sin that you deserved is taken off your shoulders and put on the person and work of Jesus Christ in our place condemned he stood. When you are saved, you are adopted as a child of God. You are no longer a stranger or an orphan or an outsider. You are no longer on your own. You are no longer a lost sheep, but you have been brought into the family and given a seat at the table. When you are saved, you are clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. God looks at you and does not see your sin and shame and guilt and the things that you've done and the things that's been done to you. He rather chooses to put on the goggles, the lenses of Jesus Christ and looks at you as pure and clean and holy. He can no more disown you than he can disown the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. Look, to be saved is something of eternal significance. So let us not say, he's saved. Let's say, hallelujah, he is saved. Or praise the Lord, she is saved. Here's what I'm saying then. What drove Paul? What drove Paul was the opportunity to participate in the salvation of men's souls. You know, I, I just finished the biography of Winston Churchill, and I listened to it on audiobook. It was a tome, 50 hours. That's a long time. Double speed, so I'm not wasting my time. <laughs> I can go three times, but my wife judges me when I do that, so I don't. Uh... And I remember listening to portions of Churchill's speeches during World War II, and he spoke about how the, the free world needed to battle Hitler and the Nazis. And, and there were times, I'll be honest with you, I'm not like a super sentimental person, but there were times where I'd be like, like little tears like started here and I'd be like, nope, get back in there. We're not crying about Winston Churchill. We're not gonna do that. But it was moving because Churchill rightfully saw the struggle as something worthy. And he was willing to sacrifice millions of British lives in order, in a sense, to save the world. That was a worthwhile endeavor, because Hitler was a monster. Look, church, that ain't nothing. The cause that you and I have been invited to give our lives for is far greater than conquering the Nazis. The cause that you and I have been invited by the Lord Jesus Christ to participate in is of eternal significance. We are playing for the souls of mankind's eternal destiny. It is the infinitely greatest struggle cause in the world. Or if I could put it very simply, the Great Commission is the greatest cause in human history, bar none, and there never will be one better. So if you want to give yourself to something, if you want to be passionate about something, be passionate, have drive, have determination to see the name of Christ exalted. Number two, the second characteristic of a missions mindset that we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is deference. Now, this one's a little bit counterintuitive. What was Paul's strategy? 
What was Paul's tactic for winning other people? It was this idea of deference. That is, he willingly set aside his rights and privileges to see Christ proclaimed. Look at verse number 20. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To those under the law, like under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. So you read that and you might say, well, what's going on? Is like Paul just a person with no background, backbone? Just a fish? Just kind of goes with the flow, goes along with the current? What is going on here? Let me draw a few implications that I hope us I hope will help us to understand what I think is going on in this critical passage of Scripture. The first observation I would simply make is this. Our message is fixed, but our methods are flexible. As Paul ministered to different types of people, he did not alter his essential message. In fact, in this very book of 1 Corinthians, he repeatedly tells us that the gospel was unshakable in his life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's my message. I'm sticking to it. I know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 3. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. If I could put it simply, Paul didn't change his product, but he was willing to change his packaging. The gospel was always his message. Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's my message, but I'm willing to tweak the packaging if I can gain a better hearing. Uh, Let me give you an illustration of that that maybe will help. Any, uh, any Diet Coke fans here? I think we got an image up here on the screen. Any Diet Coke drinkers? Okay, all right, we got a few. Now, if you go anywhere in the United States, particularly if you're in Atlanta, and you say, give me a Diet Coke, you're going to get this right here, a Diet Coke. And uh, they've created this product, and it goes into this particular packaging. But if you go other places in the world, even English-speaking places, and you ask for a Diet Coke, they're going to look at you and say, what do you mean? Because in many places in the world, even places that speak English, the word diet doesn't carry the same connotations that it does here. It doesn't necessarily mean like less sugar or anything. So what Coke decided to do was say, no, we're just going to change the branding and call it Coke, Coca-Cola Light. Look, both of those cans have the exact same thing in them. But they chose Coca-Cola Light in order that people would understand what was in the can better. All right, you you tracking now? Hey, this is exactly what we should be doing with the gospel. We are always bringing the product of Christ and him crucified. Always, always, always. 
But we need to articulate it in such a way, package it in such a way that people will be willing and able to understand it. Let me give you another real practical illustration. Do we use the exact same vocabulary down the hall with the kids' ministry as we do in here in the auditorium? Yes or no? No. Why? The reason is we want the kids to understand what we're talking about and we want you to understand what we're talking about. So maybe I'm overestimating your intelligence. I'm not sure. Let's switch. Yeah, just kidding. You understand what I'm saying? Same message, different packaging. And I think that's exactly what Paul was doing. Hey, look, we don't have any flexibility on the message. Zero. Christ and him crucified. We cannot budge from that in one iota. But our methods have a great deal of flexibility. So how did that work out? Well, I think it means that when Paul was with Jewish people, he would break out his clothes with the tassels on it. He would eat kosher and do a lot of quotations from the Old Testament. And then when he got together with his non-Jewish friends, what would he do? Well, he would take off his tassels. He would, he would quote philosophy and he would happily say, pass the pork. I think Paul preferred the Gentile audience. <laughs> Paul believed that he should do everything in his power. Listen to this to gain the greatest hearing for the gospel as possible. Look, we share a message. The message that we have is actually deeply offensive. Because here's what it says. You're not God. You're a sinner. You need a savior. You need to repent and turn away from your sins. And if you don't, God threatens terrible things. You will be judged with the wrath of God. And by the way, there's only one way to get to the Lord. And it's through Jesus Christ and him alone. That grates on modern sensibilities. That is not a popular, culturally acceptable message. That is offensive. The gospel is offensive, brothers and sisters. Nothing else should be. Let's not put people off by things that don't really matter. Let's, like Paul, set aside our preferences. Let's be all things to all men because we have a message of life and it's a hard message to hear. And so in order to gain the broadest, the widest, the clearest, understandable hearing for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be willing to be flexible with our methods. I love the story of Hudson Taylor. He went to China as a missionary. Uh, one of the first Western missionaries to go to China. Well, when he got there, Hudson Taylor quickly realized that it would be wise for him to actually adapt to and adopt the Chinese culture rather than simply try to bring his Western ideas over there so that he could proclaim the gospel more clearly. So what did he do? He shaved his head. He wore a queue, a braid. He threw off his Western clothes and wore Chinese dress and tried to blend in as much as possible. Well, the Westerners, his, his counterparts across the world, thought he was a madman and criticized and ridiculed Hudson Taylor for adopting to the culture. He, he should have just gone in there as himself and proclaimed Christ, and then they would listen. Well, here's how Taylor responded. The foreigner in Chinese dress escapes the mobbing and crowding to which, in many places, his own costume costume would subject him to. So in other words, if you're a Westerner and you go over there, you were somewhat popular. You were a bit of a spectacle 
And you got people to crowd around you. But then notice what he says. And in preaching, while his dress attracts less notice, his words attract more. So what did Taylor do? He gladly sacrificed the British clothes and prestige as a Westerner so that the gospel would gain a better hearing. The application for us remains today. We must, like Paul and like Hudson Taylor, at times be willing to set aside our preferences so that the gospel would be clearly heard. Maybe it means going to lunch with your coworkers, even though you prefer to eat by yourself or go with the people you always go with. Maybe it means showing interest in a big game, even though sports are not your cup of tea. Maybe it means spending time or money to, to be with others instead of using it for yourself. Maybe it means setting aside the way you typically do things to adapt to the patterns and habits of others. I'm not sure what it means, but I do know, according to the scripture, that we need to be all things to all men if we're to have a mission mindset. It means setting our preferences aside. Look, child of God, if you want to have this type of mindset, you've got to hold your preferences like this. Lord, if you want them, you can have them. Because my preferences are nothing compared to the mission that I've been invited on. You need me to change? I'll change. You need me to wear a different color shirt? I'll wear a different color shirt. These shoes are ugly? I'll take them off. If you need me to adopt and adapt, I will do so because the mission is worth it. It is worth every sacrifice that we can make in order to see Christ and him proclaimed. Second observation about this, we can contextualize without compromise. So you might hear what I say and you say, okay, Ryan, I'm with you and I hear you, but if I just adapt and adopt the cultures around me, won't I end up just sinning? Won't I end up just behaving in ways that actually go against what the Lord has called me to do if I'm just trying to engage and identify with people that are far from the Lord? Won't I end up being polluted in some sense? It's a fair question, and it's actually one that Paul deals with right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 21. Look at what it says, and read very carefully. To those who are without the law, so he's talking about non-Jewish people outside of the Mosaic law. To those outside of the law, like one without the law. Now notice how he caveats that. Though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. To win those without the law. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, yes, I identify with my non-Jewish friends as fully as I possibly can. I put off the ceremonial and the religious and all of these portions of the law that are non-moral absolutes. I put those off and yet I am still under the law of Christ. So what did that look like? Well, I, I think it means that, you know, if, if his Gentile friends had a party and they were grilling brats and sausages, Paul said, I'll have one or two. And if it's a big game, three, right? Put it on over here. That's all right. He didn't ask questions about where the food came from. He just said, pile it on. But then if that party suddenly turned into a drunken affair, guess what Paul did? He graciously abstained. He said, look, I can, I can identify with you to one point. But if it means sinning against the Lord, I, I can't. 
I am willing to be your friend. I am willing to identify with you. I am willing to step into your life. I'm willing to get messy, if you will. But I'm not willing to sin. Because I'm becoming all things to all men, but ultimately, I'm always a child of the Lord. And look, you know this instinctively, don't you? If you have ever done that with the unbeliever and engaged in their life in a meaningful way and then kind of said, thus far and no more, they usually actually appreciate it. They're like, oh man, this person actually loves me. They care about me. They're engaged in my life and they still have principles. What's going on there? You see, the Bible calls us in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us the salt of the earth, right? Well, there's a couple of things about salt that are true. If we're to be this way, we actually have to get out of the salt shaker. You have to come in contact with the world. There's no way anybody's gonna be salted if you are distant from them or separate from them. So that's the first thing. And the other thing is you gotta be different than the thing that you're coming in contact with. If I eat some mashed potatoes and I'm like, they need more salt and I put more mashed potatoes on it, does it solve the issue? No, it's just more bad food. I need to put something distinct on that food, come in contact with that food so that it changes. And brothers and sisters, that is our call. You can contextualize without compromising. You need to be salty. Get in touch with people, come in contact with unbelievers, and then be distinctive. Be different from them. Be loving. Be gracious. Don't be a jerk. Frankly, a lot of our problems would be solved if that would just be our, that would be, don't be a jerk. Love people. Care about people. Get involved in their lives, and that will open up wonderful opportunities for you to share Christ. Just don't compromise as you do it. It is a wonderful, wonderful call. And listen, I don't think it's just possible to contextualize without compromising. I think it is our Christian responsibility to do so. Part of following Jesus means that we seek to engage with those who do not know him. Third observation I would make here. If you become a bridge, you will be walked on. You hear this and you might say, well, Pastor Ron, that sounds kind of tough. Yep. Giving up your preferences all the time is not easy. Consistently sacrificing for the sake of the gospel seems like it demands a lot for me. Yep. And remember, this passage doesn't say that Paul doesn't have preferences. I'm sure he did. It simply said he sacrificed them. He was willing to set them aside. This is a reminder that when you seek to become a bridge from those who do not know Jesus to the Savior, they're going to walk on you to get there. That's part of it. We follow in the steps of our Savior when we sacrifice ourselves to see them reconciled with God. It costs. It costs to be an agent of reconciliation in people's life. I'm sure it was not easy for Paul to leave all his traditions behind. I'm confident it was not comfortable for Hudson Taylor to endure the ridicule of his countrymen for his unorthodox approach to ministry, but it was worth it. And let us not forget, friends, that there is no more worthwhile work in the world than reconciling sinners to Christ. And wonder of wonder, miracles of miracles, God invites you and I to be involved in that. Number three, discipline. The last trait that we want to discuss here this morning 
of a mission mindset is discipline. Paul uses an athletic analogy to drive his point home. Look at verse number 24. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, this imagery would have been very familiar to the Corinthians because not only were, were the Olympic Games a staple of Greek culture, but Corinth was actually the host of the Ithmian Games, which happens on the year before and the year after the Olympics. So these folks would have been familiar with big races and world-class athletes. They would have got the idea that these people were not just, oh, I think I'll run the race. But these were people who trained and worked hard and disciplined themselves in order to win. You know, Michael Phelps, in our day, is by far the most decorated athlete in Olympic history. 28 medals. It's really unthinkable when you stop and, and pause when you think about it. Unthinkable when you think about it. Somebody help me later. Um, during his career, Phelps would train for six days a week without fail. Six hours in the pool every single day for six days a week. Eight miles in the pool. I can't even spell eight miles in the pool. And he would not break this regimen. If Christmas Day fell on a training day, guess what? He's in the pool. He's swimming. And why did he do it? To win some medals that will rust and fade and corrupt. We do it. We do it to win something far, far of more greater value. If Michael Phelps shows this level of discipline just to win an earthly prize, should not you and I be disciplined to win people to Christ? Here's a few questions to help us diagnose just where we are. These aren't meant to be condemnation. They're meant to challenge our conscience. When was the last time you clearly presented the gospel to someone? How does proclaiming Jesus show up on your calendar? Do you take the finger cross method to evangelism that we often take? Hey, when somebody shows up and just say, can you tell me how to be saved? We're just waiting for that moment. Can you see a commitment to sharing Jesus in the way that you build and cultivate relationships? What unbelievers are you specifically praying for by name? right now in your life? Are there people that you are specifically praying for by name? I think the answers to those questions often show us that we're not very disciplined in this area, right? We're not like Paul who says, I keep my body under subjection so I don't be disqualified. I want to win. And in order to win, I train. And I work hard in order to see people come to Christ. Here's how Charles Spurgeon puts it. A man with no sensibility or compassion for other men's souls may accidentally be the means of conversion. The good word which he utters will not cease to be good because the speaker had no right to declare God's statuses. 
a hard-hearted man may say a good thing, which God will bless, but as a rule, those who bring souls to Christ are those who have first felt an agony of desire that souls should be saved. God is pleased to use yearnings and longings and the sympathies of Christian men as the means of compelling the careless to think, constraining the hardened to feel, and driving the unbeliever to consider. I have great faith that in the simple-minded Christian women who must have souls converted or she will weep her eyes out over them, and in the humble Christian who prays day and night in secret and then avails himself of every opportunity to address a loving word to sinners, the emotion we feel and the affection we bear are the most powerful implements of soul winning. Listen to this last sentence. God, the Holy Ghost, usually breaks hard hearts by tender hearts. It is quite possible for us to be distracted by 10,000 good things and miss the main thing. It is quite possible for our hearts to have grown calloused toward the state of those who do not know Jesus around us. You might hear all this and think, I do want people to be saved, but I'm busy, right? And I'm scared, right? And I don't even know where to begin. Well, here's the reality. God calls his people to have a missionary mindset because he is the missionary God. Think about it for a moment. When the Father sent Jesus to the world, Jesus was the epitome of drive. He had a goal from which he would not swerve. John 3, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. When Jesus came into the world, he certainly exercised gospel deference. He had every right. He had every privilege. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe. And he set it all aside, not just to identify with man, but actually to become a man. John 1, verse number 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as Jesus approached his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, his discipline was on full display. Nothing could hinder him from what he came to do. Here's the words of Jesus himself, John chapter 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And now my soul is troubled. What should I say, Father? Save me from this hour? No, no, this is why I came. I came for this hour. Father, glorify your name. Look, but as you know, Jesus didn't stay dead. That wasn't the end. He rose from the tomb, and as he spoke to his 12 failing, afraid, feeble, inept disciples, he came up out of that tomb, and he says, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. Look, 
say at Gospel Hope Church, you are sent. That is not just some sort of sentiment or nice way to close out a, sent- a, a service. It is the bedrock reality of our existence. You are God's sent ones. That is who we are. We have hope that people would be saved because we are sent. So when you are afraid, you are sent. And when you failed and you feel guilty and you're like, Lord, I haven't shared the gospel in years, you are sent. And when you don't have the words to say, you, church, are sent. Remember, Jesus died not just to save. He died to send. This is our blood-bought destiny. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. You are his ambassador in the world. And friends, if God is for us, who can be against us? His mission will not fail. His church will be built. And here's the thing, the church is plan A and there is no plan B. So let's get on our feet and let's sing to the one who died to send us into the world. Let's sing together.